Well, good morning, HBC. So much truth in what our pastor just read in chapter 3, verses 17 through 33. That would be worth a daily reading for you um, until this quarantine lifts. So be encourage you to do that. Read Lamentations 3, 17 through 33 again and again and again, as there's so much in there that reminds us of God's purpose and affliction and what he intends to do with us as his people. Let's pray together, and then we're going to get into this chapter in Lamentations. Father, we now commit, commit ourselves in this next few minutes, several minutes to you as we consider your word. We pray that you would arrest our attention and our hearts upon and fix us fast upon your word. We know there are so many distractions. Um, even as we, if we were to gather here physically, there come various challenges, but especially as we're scattered all throughout Owensboro and, and tuning in, uh, there's so many distractions that can come, some of our own doing by just being distracted ourselves, but some from outside of us. So we pray that in this time, you would sanctify this moment together so that we could focus and give full attention to what you are saying to us in your word in these moments together. So speak. Your servants are listening. We want to hear a word from our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata, whom many of you know, a great sister in the Lord who served him faithfully for many years in spite being a quadriplegic, writes the following. She says, when a broken neck ambushed my life and left me a quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. At night, I would thrash my head on the pillow, hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my misery. After I left the hospital, I refused to get out of bed. I told my sister, just close the drapes, turn out the light, and shut the door. My paralysis was permanent, and inside, I died. That's how I felt. But after weeks in bed, I got tired of being depressed, and I finally cried out, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. It was just the prayer God was waiting for. From then on, I would ask my sister to get me up and park me in my wheelchair in front of my Bible, holding a mouth stick I would flip this way and that looking for answers, any answer. I sought the help of a Christian counselor friend who took me directly to the book of Lamentations. He showed me the third chapter. I am the man who has seen affliction. Surely against me God has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. Lamentations one and or 3 verses 1 and 3. I marveled. Johnny writes, thinking, that's me. I was amazed to learn that God welcomes our laments. I would eventually learn, mainly through lamentations and psalms, that nothing is more freeing than knowing God understands. When we are in pain, God feels the sting in his chest. Our frustrations and questions do not fluster him. He knows all about them. He wrote the book on them. More astoundingly, he invites us to come and air our grievances before him, end quote. Johnny's so good, <laughs> anytime you read her. But she didn't get there overnight. She got there through a process of lamentation. So we're talking in these days about what it means to learn to lament. And we've defined lament in the following ways in our sermon last week. We said it's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And the first step that we saw last week in, in chapters 1 and 2 involved crying, 
crying out to God. We turn to God and we address him in prayer. That is the first and crucial step of lamentation. But secondly, there's another step, and that's what we're going to come to in our sermon this morning. And that second step we find in chapter 3 is complaining. Complaining involves a blunt and specific acknowledgement of pain and or injustice. Now, don't get me wrong. We often can misdefine or redefine or mistakenly define complaining. We just think of it as venting. The complaining that I'm talking about is not the expression of a sinful, self-centered rage at God when life is not going the way you like. It is not getting angry at God. But rather, complaining involves making a case against God. It is, as one writer says, throwing the promises of God back at him. That's what I mean by complaining. Another writer adds, a lament honestly and specifically names a situation or circumstance that is painful, wrong, or unjust. In other words, a circumstance that does not align with God's character and therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom from the perspective of the one offering the complaint. So, a complaint then not, is not venting, it's not expressing some sort of sinful, self-centered rage, but rather it's what happens in the interim between the goodness of God and the hardness of life. That's where a complaint comes in. And so, this morning we want to talk about what, it, what godly complaint consists of. So I've entitled this sermon, Complaining, the Hope-Giving Way of Honesty. One writer explains her complaint and her family's complaint in the following way. The ultrasound was too familiar, the same room where we learned of Sylvia's death. As the doctor began to move the wand over Sarah's womb, a shadow of concern crossed his face. Sarah watched carefully and noticed she raised her head. What is it? she asked. I thought she was overreacting. I tried to reassure, but the look on the doctor's face was now clear to me as well. Something was wrong. I don't know how to tell you this, our doctor said, but there's no baby in your womb. Your hormone levels are good. There's a home, but there's no baby. It's called a blighted ovum, a false positive pregnancy. Sarah's head fell back and she sobbed. Again, we walked numb to the car. I closed the door. We needed to pray. But what do you say in this moment? While I didn't understand it at the time, Sarah's prayer is what you'll find as you study lament. Her prayer was a complaint, an honest and blunt conversation with God. And in order for you to learn how to experience the mercy of lament, you need to learn to complain. Here's what Sarah said. God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like you are today. Sarah and I were sitting in our car outside our doctor's office. My wife's blunt prayer was all she could muster. We were devastated again. Then the writer concludes, that was the tension Sarah was expressing in her tear-filled complaint. She believed in God's goodness with all her heart, but a blighted ovum after a stillbirth and multiple miscarriages felt cruel. She was expressing godly complaint. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. What does godly complaint consist of? And I've got three points, 
and you can follow along with me in the notes that were sent out to you earlier this week if you have them or just um, as, we, as we walk through them, they'll be on the screen. Number one, complaining involves dealing honestly with God. Number one, complaining involves dealing honestly with God. See, biblical lament does not work if you try to fake it with God. If you try to say things that you think you ought to say, but not things you really want to say. It, 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 it's duplicitous. See, what's critical is honest dealing with God. This involves talking to him as our loving Heavenly Father about our pain, our fears, our frustrations. Godly lament remembers that we have a Savior who can deal gently with us and who understands our struggles, who cried out with raw honesty on the cross, my God, my God. It reckons with the reality that the Spirit intercedes for us in our groanings, according to Romans 8, 26. So I want you to look at the first several verses of Lamentations chapter 3. We're not going to read every single verse in chapter 3. It's 66 verses, so we're not going to have time to deal with every single one of them. But I do want to highlight several. And I just want you to notice in these first 16 verses the way the writer deals so honestly with how they are feeling related to God and describing the situation as they experience it. Now I'm just going to offer you some summary terms as we walk through. Jeremiah begins by telling and describing the situation exactly how he feels. He identifies the Lord in several different ways. In the first eight verses, he feels like God is his enemy. Look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. See, he's envisioning God just keeps, I come to him, he keeps pushing me away. He's pushing me away. He's pushing me away. It's like, it's like I'm his enemy. Verse 4, he's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. See, that's not what a friend does. You don't think a, a gang attacks you. It's like, those are my friends. They broke my face. They broke my arm. They broke my leg. Verse 5, he's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me up about so I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. We see in verses 7 through 9 that he begins talking to him like God's some sort of prison warden who won't let him out of jail. We see that he's walled me about so I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. It's like I'm sitting in a dungeon chained up to the wall or I got the prison ball wrapped around my ankle. Verse 9, he's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. Then in verses 10 and 11, he describes God treating him like a wild animal would treat a prey. He says in verse 10, he's, he's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's, he's made me desolate. Then in verse 12, he describes God as like the hunter who shot the prey down. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. And then in verses 13 through 16, he describes God as a warrior who ambushed him and came upon him with great success and ridded him of any hope and joy. Verse 13 we read, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. When you read these, do you think, wow, that's honest? 
That's what you should feel. He's being honest. Now, he's, he's not being unrighteous. He's describing how it feels, how he feels like God is treating him in those moments. It's, it's an honest recollection and expression of experience. You know, we, we could take the time, we won't, but if you, if you were to go to the Psalms and read over and over and over again the verses on complaint, you would see them fill with these analogies and images of how they feel in relation to how God should be treating them according to his promise. So where does this honest dealing come from? Well, we, we've already talked about complaint is what happens when what you're looking at doesn't, and what you're experiencing in life doesn't seem to correspond with who God is. You say, God is good, but it doesn't feel like he's good. God is kind and merciful, but it doesn't feel like God's kind and merciful. God is gracious and long-suffering and patient, but it doesn't seem like God is long, gracious, long-suffering, and patient. See, and, and what's happening here is an honest dealing with God concerning how the author feels about that treatment. So that's the first step in complaint. It's an honest dealing with God. It involves telling God exactly how we feel. So that's what we see in the first 16 verses. And in this case, Jeremiah describes him as an enemy, a warden, a wild animal, a hunter, a warrior, and, and various other images. Secondly, Complaining involves faithfully believing in God. See, we don't stop with that. I'm going to go give God a piece of my mind. That's not, that's not biblical lament. It involves telling him a piece of your heart, but not giving him a piece of your mind. And what, what's involved in lament is not, like we said, it's not venting. It's not just, I'm just going to tell God how I feel, but rather it's telling him how you feel so that it might lead you to believe in him, to hope in him, and to trust in him. We see this in verse 17 through 33, which is what our pastor read for us, so I'm not going to revisit those verses one at a time. But we see that transition. The, the, Jeremiah is describing how, how he feels in relationship to how God has treated him, but he doesn't stop there. He says, this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And then he begins describing who he knows God to be on the basis of his promises. See, we love reading in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. We love that verse. But it's important to remember that that verse originated in a broken heart. Jeremiah proclaims the never-ending, morning-ready mercies of the Lord over a destroyed city. Jerusalem, like we saw last week, looked like a wasteland. It was a war zone. And in the face of that, Jeremiah declares the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. He described it in the face of a pandemic, so to speak not in the face of prosperity. So brothers and sisters, these verses teach us that hope does not come from a change in circumstances. Right? Some of us will be tempted, well, if my circumstances were different, I would have reason to hope in God. None of Jeremiah's circumstances changed. None of them. Our circumstances do not give us an excuse to not hope. Our circumstances should encourage us to hope. 
because our circumstances reveal to us what we were really hoping in in the first place. And so our, our circumstances give us an opportunity to reorient our hope onto God. So hope comes from what we know to be true in spite of what we see right in front of us. In other words, we live through suffering by what we believe, not by what we perceive. That's an important truth for us to remember. We live through suffering by what we believe, not by what we perceive. That's just another way of saying we walk by faith and not by sight. In the darkest moment of your life, I hope you'll have the faith-filled resolve to say, I am going to call to mind what God is like. I'm going to tell myself what I know to be true. My feelings will not have the last word. We remember that grace glows in the dark and that hope springs from truth rehearsed. That's where hope comes from. It springs from truth rehearsed. See, brothers and sisters, complaint was never meant to be an end in itself. Jeremiah doesn't simply complain about what's going on. Rather, he points his heart to what he knows to be true in spite of what's going on. We are not permitted to wallow in our frustrations, our pain, or our grief. Rather, we are to call to mind certain things. So what are those things that we are to call to mind when we're going through challenging circumstances? What what do we call to mind? What does believing in God consist of? Well, let me give you four that are in verses 17 through 39. Here's the first thing you call to mind and what I call to mind and what we should all call to mind. God's mercy will be here tomorrow and every day after that. God's mercy will be here tomorrow and every day after that. That's just another way of saying what we read in verses 23 really in 23, 22 and 23. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, I love great is your faithfulness, the song, the hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. It reminds us of God's consistency and his constancy and his ever-present care. But let's remember that when we sing great is your faithfulness, we are singing it, at least Jeremiah was singing it or saying it, out of the midst of a lot of pain. Mark Rogop, author of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says, sometimes my last prayer of the day is a faith-filled, promise-claiming lament. I climb into bed exhausted because all day long I've had to wrestle with my thinking. When sorrow and weariness try to take over the closing moments of the day, I pray something like this, Lord, I'm weary and tired, I'm discouraged, and I don't know how I'm going to do this again tomorrow. But, there's that important word that Pastor Keith brought in front of us. But, I believe your mercies are going to be new when I wake up. I believe that I will never run out of your steadfast love. I'm trusting that you have enough grace for me for what I face. I'm going to sleep because I'm hoping in you. That's what it means to know that God's mercy will be here tomorrow and every day after that. We know that when we wake up in the morning fresh mercy will meet us before our feet hit the ground. And that when we go to bed that night, the anticipation that we can have should we wake up the next morning, and even if we don't wake up the next morning, we're in God's presence where mercy will never end. 
But if we should wake up that following morning, then we should know mercy will be there again for me this day. So this, again, is, is teaching us an important biblical truth. We live one day at a time. We live one day at a time. Sufficient for the day, Jesus said in Matthew 6, is its own trouble. We don't bring in tomorrow's worries into today. As Deuteronomy says, as your days, so your strength shall be. So we live one day, day by day, reliant upon God's mercy, knowing that it will be here today, tomorrow, and every day after that. No matter what the circumstances are showing. Second truth we call to mind, God's timing is different than mine, and I'm going to wait for him. God's timing is different from mine, and I'm going to wait for him. Look at this. Look at what he says in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He doesn't say good circumstances are my portion. He says the Lord is my portion, and I'm going to hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 27, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheeks to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. In other words, wait, wait, wait. Why is waiting so hard? It's hard for many of us, if not all of us, from time to time. I want to submit to you that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that waiting can be so challenging is because when we're waiting, it feels like we are out of control and not doing anything. Right? We're, we're hardwired in our sin to have to feel like we need to create situations that we can control. Waiting rips us out of that. Waiting takes us and makes us feel out of control. It makes us feel like we have no resources. It makes us feel like we have nothing to grab onto. It makes us feel like we're not doing anything. And that's the point. That's the point. We aren't in control. <laughs> but God is. And when we're not doing anything, God is doing everything. So waiting can be hard because it requires us to release the fear of what might happen. Could that be one of the reasons God has led us into this pandemic, church? To get us out of our routines, to show what we really hope in, what really brings us joy, what really fuels our days, what really motivates us. And in that waiting, in that uncertainty, all sorts of sin gets surfaced so that we can deal with it. And so that God can show us, so that he can lead us in a better path. See, waiting leaves us powerless. We want to know the answer. <laughs> we want to know what's going on. But waiting strips us of all of that. But in waiting, we, re we release what is going on in our lives. And we say to God, God, I don't know what you're doing. And I don't know why you're doing it. And I don't have to because you're trustworthy and you're God. That's what waiting does. So the first two truths that we need to call to mind is God's mercy will be here tomorrow and every day after that. And God's timing is different than mine. So I will wait for him. Third thing, third truth we call to mind is God's purposes are being accomplished and it won't always be this way. God's purposes are being accomplished and it won't always be this way. 
Look at verse 31 and 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Jeremiah looks at this bereft city. He says, it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he caused it, he brought it. We saw that last week. It was a result of his judgment, his wrath on their sin. But though he caused grief, here's where gutsy guilt comes in. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, he's saying, God doesn't like this any more than you do. <laughs> At a certain level, that's true. Now, we know his purposes he delights in. His decrees are always right, and therefore, in his decretive sense, God is very pleased with this, but only because it's accomplishing good purposes for his people. It's not that he destroys sending in a Babylonian army and ransacking a city like that's really what gets God going. I love it when I burn my cities to the ground. No, he loves what it produces. And so therefore he's using the evil, keeping his hands clean in the process, but bringing about a good purpose for his people. But nevertheless, there's another part of this that God doesn't like at all. He doesn't, from his heart, grieve the children of men, which means there's not something deep in his heart that loves just making his people wince in pain. God's not that kind of God. God is a God who for his purposes and for the good that we'll do to his people will afflict us, but it's not being motivated by some sort of injustice or evil in his heart. That's what Jeremiah is saying. He's not, he's not doing it out of, his, out of his heart. He's not doing it because that's what he deeply loves to do. And that's a beautiful picture of our God, about how he feels about us and about what he does in our grief. So, brother and sister, brothers and sisters, we should never think when we're going through difficult times that, oh, this is God just getting back at me. This is God just willingly and eagerly grieving me. He likes to make my life a mess. He likes to make my life hard. He really, really wants to do me wrong. No, that's not the... We need to call things to mind. We need to speak to those feelings and say, lies, lies are being spoken to me by my flesh right now or by the world or by the devil. Those are lies. He will not cast us off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. And you need to cling to him and, and throw that promise back in his face. Say, Lord, you said, though you cause grief, you will have compassion according to the abundance of your steadfast love. I will wait for that. I will wait until you plead my cause and vindicate me. I will wait for you. In the meantime, give me grace to trust you and to hope in you, even when all feels hopeless. Fourth and final truth. God's goodness is motivating everything that is happening to me. God's goodness is motivating everything that is happening to me. You know, these, I just, just struck me that we can speak these four truths over everything that we've been experiencing in this pandemic. God's mercy has been here for us, has it not? Every single day. Every day you've had the mercy of God. You might have not had the privilege of gathering with the church, but you've gotten to enjoy the mercy of God every single day. God's timing has been different. We didn't know when with this whole thing was going to lift. We still don't really know. It could take a turn tomorrow. But nevertheless, we're going to trust him and we're going to wait for him. We know that his purposes are being accomplished. Pastor Keith prayed that earlier, that his purposes are getting worked out. And then it won't always be this way. There will come a time where he will lift this from us 
and we will be restored. And we have to know that in the midst of it, God's goodness is motivating everything that is happening right now. So look at verse 33 where he says, or verse 34, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. See, it's not like God, and what, what Jeremiah is calling to mind is he's knowing God is not unjust. He says, God doesn't approve of injustice. Verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? See, this is, this is saying, God, you're just. We deserve this. You're the one who sent this. Why should we complain when we, in fact, are the cause of such things? This text is teaching us that all this pain is not proceeding from a heart that God, in God that enjoys inflicting hardship on his people, but rather his goodness is governing everything that is happening, and therefore he can be trusted. Why? Because he's just. He looks upon evil, and he doesn't approve of it. He looks upon injustice, and he doesn't say, yeah, let's keep doing that. No. But in fact, what Babylon did to Israel, to Jerusalem, was unjust. He says, when to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his law, to come in and ransack another city and just take them over just because you want to? That's not just. And so he's saying, look, I sent Babylon because of your sin, and I'm using them to humble you and to work in you, but don't think that that means that I approve of what they've done or approve of the re all the results that have happened as a result of that. No, it's come as a punishment for your sin, but it's not come because I delight in injustice. God doesn't delight in the pain of his children, but rather there are loving purposes behind every difficulty. We can't see all the purposes or the whole story behind what God is doing, but instead we must simply believe that God is good, that he does all things well. We have to believe his intentions are kind, that his ways are just, and that all the hardship we are enduring is working for our glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16-18 says that our sufferings, though they are light and momentary, even though I know they don't feel that way, but in comparison to eternity, they are. They are producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's almost like God is keeping... Um, We've sung about that a lot with Brandon and the, and the worship team's leadership. We've, we've sung a lot about how what God takes away, Jesus will repay. And that's the, that's, the, that's the vision here of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The light and momentary afflictions that come, Jesus is aware of those. Jesus is aware. Think of Job. What did he do with Job? Everything he took away, he restored twofold. He restored more, more, more than even what he took away. Now, that's no promise that that will happen to us in our life, but it is a promise that it will happen in the life to come. We are going to get so much more. When we find out, in light of all the sufferings we've endured, all the pain that, that God has brought about for our good in our lives, and we walk in and we see all that that produced, all that that pain stored up, we will think, that's not even worthy to be compared. What in the world? How did that, how did that balance out? I had to endure the loss of my child? For that? That's the way. I know that doesn't feel that way now. 
Or I had to endure this heart-wrenching, difficult situation or this crippling cancer that racked my body for decades. Or this unfortunate circumstance in my life that never got fixed or this job situation that I had to deal with again and again and again and it felt like it was never going to change and it didn't. It didn't get any better. And yet when we get there, we will say, that feels light and momentary. (laughs) This feels permanent and everlasting because that's our God. God does not enjoy your struggle, brothers and sisters, but he's producing something from it that fits with God's good heart towards you. So God could have designed a universe where we forever lived in Eden without trial or tragedy, but he didn't. Yet if God is good, and he is, we can be sure he's doing something better. So brother or sister, if, you, if you're his child, don't fear his trials. They are props in his story for you, which is better than Eden. That's what calling these things to mind helps us to remember. So thirdly and finally, we've seen, first of all, that we deal honestly, complaining involves dealing honestly with God. Secondly, complaining involves faithfully believing in God. And we believe four truths specifically. God's mercy will be here tomorrow and every day after that. God's timing is different from mine and I will wait for him. God's purposes are being accomplished and it won't always be this way. Fourthly, God's goodness is motivating everything that's happening to me. So here's the third and final aspect of complaint, and with this we'll conclude. Complaining involves coming humbly to God. Complaining involves coming humbly to God. So if you're going to offer a complaint to God, it must be done with a humble heart. Proud, demanding questions that assert that God owes us something are always sinful. As we said before, it's not venting, it's not self-centered rage, but neither is it stoicism or withdrawal. See, typically we respond to life's hardships in one of two ways. Either we get angry and fight, or we get hurt and run. We either live in a prison of bitterness, or we live in a prison of numbness, and neither is healthy. A biblical approach to lament means that we express our complaint humbly to God. We neither fight him, since we are coming humbly, and neither do we engage in flight, since we are in fact coming to God. So humble coming to God is the key. Because the humility deals the death blow to the tendency to fight, and the coming deals the death blow to the tendency to flight. So in what ways does this humility manifest itself? How does it look? Well, we see in the last third of this chapter exactly how it looks. So first of all, there's acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's confession of sin. There's, it's not, see, what, 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 what will make this lament tempered with humility, what makes complaining humble is acknowledging that you're a sinner and that you have sinned against God. Look at verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven and say this, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. That's what we do. Say, we deserve it. We deserve it. We have transgressed against you. We have sinned against you. Secondly, there's true godly grief 
over the consequences of our rebellion. It's not just a, 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 a verbal confession. It's a heart brokenness. Look at what Jeremiah says in verse 43. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You've wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pit, pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird, but those who were my enemies without cause, they flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. See, what he's doing is grieving. There's true grief over the consequences of, of, the, of the sin that has led to this. And then finally, there's a trust in the justice and coming vindication of God. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You've heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You've redeemed my life. You've seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. See, there's this trust. God will do what's right. God will vindicate. God will eventually come through. Notice he turns from the he of the opening verses. You see that? Look at verse 1 again. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me. Verse 4, he has made my flesh. Verse 5, he has besieged. Verse 6, he has made. Verse 7, he has walled. We see this, if you just read through the first half of the chapter, it's all he, 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 he. It's almost addressing God impersonally. But yet, when we get to these parts, it's, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, you, 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 you. You see, he's addressing God personally, not just the situation. And that makes all the difference. When you stop rehearsing the situation and you start addressing your God. With this quote, I'll close and then we'll pray. Stephen Smith says, The loss is real, the pain is real, the heartbreak is real, and the devastation is real. Real people lost their lives and their homes and their dreams of a whole covenant relationship with God. This is where God finds them and this is where God works. God does, in fact, do maintenance, but what is thrilling is when he does a complete restoration. <laughs> sure, he does detailing to people who are already showroom quality, yet what makes us stand up and notice is the restored, rusted-out junker. When the odometer is turned over a few times, parts are missing, and the in torn interior reeks of bad decisions, that's when God's abilities are more obvious. He is so faithful, he restores. And that's what's going on in chapter 3. And brothers and sisters, that's what God's doing in our lives. Some of us were born with a degree of showroom quality. We, we looked pretty good. And we, we, we lived pretty decently. But deep down we knew what kind of sinners we were. But others of us, in fact probably the majority of us, have had the experience of a rusted out junker 
where we felt like, I've got nothing to offer God. Why would he deal with me? But brothers and sisters, those are the ones that God is drawn to. God's kind of like American pickers. He likes finding the rare stuff that he can make what it, what it should be. Restore it to complete beauty. And so this is the encouragement to any of us in light of the gospel and what Christ is willing to do. God is into renovation. God is into transformation. God is into reclamation and restoration. And so if you're listening to me this morning and you've heard the service or heard the sermon and heard our pastor's plea to come to Christ, I just want to reinforce that. That God is in the business of reclamation and you need to submit yourself to his reclamation agenda. It'll, it'll be uncertain, it'll be difficult, it'll feel weird, it'll be strange, but it will be beautiful in the end because God is a God who redeems. The Lord Jesus Christ came in the world to reclaim, to save his people from their sins. And we see part of that salvation being procured and, and taken here in chapter three as God begins the renovation process of his people. But that's fulfilled when Jesus Christ came into the world and said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And according to 1 Peter, that Jesus came so that we might be redeemed, not with the blood of insignificance, but with the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may you come to him this morning and cast yourself on him and begin seeing his beauty beginning to be reformed in your life and his, the beauty of his image, the image of Christ, beginning to be restored in you. Let's pray together and then we will sing. Father, we are grateful that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. How do we know that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So often we've sung this morning, look to the cross, look to the cross, look to the cross. Because on the cross, in spite of whatever our circumstances are saying to us, the cross always says, God loves you. God loves you. This is not happening to you because God doesn't love you. Because that cannot be. Because the cross speaks something different. So thank you for the cross. Where all of our hope is found. Where all our security lies. And where all our eternal life was secured. We pray this in the name of the one who hung there. In the name of the one who rose again. Jesus Christ, amen.